Episode 96 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, it's a movie produced by one of the hottest current studios, Neon, and starring one of the hottest current actresses, Elizabeth Moss. That film is Shirley. But before we review it, how are you, Scott? I'm doing pretty well. We uh, Another week goes by. Somehow crazier things have continued to happen in COVID-19. I mean... What the truly remarkable thing beyond just everything that's happening, right, is that not only has this other thing that's sprung up that's been so distracting and understandably so, but in the midst of all this, we we have com- it seems like the world has conveniently forgotten that at at right now the global daily new cases of coronavirus is higher than it ever has been. It is the highest it's ever been right now. Yeah, globally, I mean, this is globally, so not not uh-huh. specifically the U.S., but still, like it's just not being talked about anymore at, at all. And, and, um, and that's what, some of that is understandable, but yeah, it's just like crazy to think about. And I mean, that's what we're experiencing here too in, in Chattanooga. I mean, the answer is just that people have stopped caring. I mean, that's yeah. that that all along. I think we were wondering when will the the pandemic end, and I think we have the answer now: is when people stop caring, right? Because Chattanooga on Friday, on Friday, I believe it was, had 105 new cases or something. Which like, is it was way over- more than you were ever having before. Because my, my, yeah. when I was asking my mom, it was like, oh, we're having like three or four new cases a day. But you don't hear anyone talking about, oh, maybe we should shut stuff down. You know, you don't see people exercise precautions. Like, I mean, every time I drive past the pool in our neighborhood, it's just covered up with people. Like, the pool is open. Um, yeah. And, yeah, so it, 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 it is definitely frustrating. I mean, I, I do understand like some people are like, well, you know, if we can have all of these protests, you know, where, with all of these people close together, then why can't we open stuff back up? I, I mean, the I vast think majority of those people are wearing masks, though. And yes. And it's not like there are these more protests are the first. That well, that but there's also like yeah. this isn't the first protest that were happening. There are a bunch of entitled people, you know, demanding with guns that the that their businesses yeah. be reopened, you know, just a month ago. And no one no one seemed to have any issue with it. And then so yeah. it's just yeah i mean look people look for excuses to point their fingers at things yeah so i mean i don't i don't know what's going to happen because like new york though for example like the other day they just had their first day with no new cases um i saw that andrew cuomo had tweeted that out um and so i mean that's that's a positive um yeah and they started know, their I, phase one reopening um a couple days ago i think and yeah, Boston started our phase one reopening just do the same yeah yeah yeah, I, I so it's all I good signs. That. It's all good signs for AMC, who uh, recorded a two point four billion dollar loss last quarter, and are about probably less than a month away from going bankrupt unless unless they get some sort of relief. So we'll see if they make it to tenants' release. They need to just open up some drive-ins, is what they need to do, or sponsor some drive-ins or something because yeah. those are staying open. But I, I'm yeah. sure they have a few. I mean, I assume that they have a couple drive-ins. Maybe maybe they don't yeah. at all. Maybe I'm totally wrong about that. But I know that they did. It, it was a big deal for them last week because they opened their first movie theater back up in Norway, their Odeon, the Odeon Theater that they own in Norway. Uh, so just that alone is, like a, I think, a big milestone, just getting one theater back open globally. Because, I mean, obviously, they have a ton of theaters globally, uh, and they need to start reopening them to be able to make money. But 
so far, Tenet's still on track for July 17th release. We'll see if that happens. It'll depend a lot again on San Francisco, LA, New York, those markets specifically. But so far, so good. I don't know. Well, maybe in a month's time, we have to have a hard discussion about whether we review Tenet on the podcast. I don't know. It's going to be going to be a little bit wild. Um, yeah, no, I, and I don't also I'm talking about AMC. I don't know if they have any theaters in like New Zealand, but I noticed I saw today that New Zealand has no reported cases at all of it now. Um, I mean, that's why they're able to start. They're like resuming Avatar sequels, however many 10,000 sequels they're doing for Avatar's (laughs) production in New Zealand started back up like a couple weeks ago. It's like, I mean, good. It's awesome. I mean, it's good that the world's starting to return back to normal, but it doesn't feel like most of Mm -hmm. the world is there yet. Well, I think I would be willing to risk it for tenant because I think social distancing protocols will still be in place. But yeah. uh, we'll see what will happen when we when we actually do get to July 17th. But uh, Scott, anyway, last week we hit one of the highs of quarantine movies with the high note. Uh, so let's see now if we can make it two in a row with Shirley. Uh, Directed by Josephine Decker, whose last film was the 2018 indie darling Madeline's Madeline, Shirley is not your grandmother's biopic of famed author Shirley Jackson. Instead, this is an intense psychodrama which centers on the torrid relationship between Jackson, played by Elizabeth Moss, and her husband Stanley, played by Michael Stuhlbarg. And the way that it changes when Stanley invites young couple Fred and Rose, played by Logan Lerman and Odessa Young, into their home. Fred is a budding professor who wants the advice of the erudite Stanley, while Rose is a creative mind who is stifled when Stanley forces her to do the housework that Shirley cannot do while she is tortured by the novel she is supposed to be working on. Shirley is a mercurial personality, and at first she and Rose clash, but after a while, a bond begins to form between the women as they discover that they have more in common than they thought and that they can each help each other when society is uninclined to help them. Scott, do Moss and Neon continue their hot streak with a provocative drama, or is this a convoluted misfire unbecoming of either name? Well, I will say this much, is that this film should absolutely be canceled for not filming on location right near where I went to school. (laughs) Uh, This is supposed to be set in Bennington College, and they're filming at freaking Vassar. Come on, man. Mm. Canceled. Absolutely canceled. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, No, I, I wasn't quite sure what to expect going into this film. We, when we reviewed Invisible Man, I, I think I talked about in somewhat some detail there about how nothing Elizabeth Moss had really done had particularly captivated me. And I, I think I thought that maybe she was a little bit overrated in terms of all the hype she's gotten around all the things she's been doing because she's been very busy. Admittedly, I didn't see her smell last year and I don't need to rehash everything I talked about on the Invisible Man podcast. But needless to say, I think that this is, for me at least, two in a row for Elizabeth Moss and uh, about three in a row four in a row for neon here if you go back to parasite and then portrait of a lady on fire which was finally distributed in the u.s earlier this year and then to this one i was gonna say they also had wild rose and loose last year so they had some really good stuff wild rose was neon it was i thought it was entertainment one okay um interesting no awesome then sure so like going going back as far as that then they're crushing it and you know like all the talk around oscar season was neon it started like two or three years ago and they are they are hot now like they're absolutely hot uh getting acquired by neon is a huge freaking deal because i mean in large part because of how successful parasite was uh at the end of the day but the reality is is that they are acquiring and distributing movies whether they're producing them themselves seems like they're not i don't think they they've produced any of these films in particular but the at least when you're when they're acquiring films and they're distributing them they're doing they're picking the movies right and they're doing the distribution right as well. I mean, here is a different story, but I mean, 
a lot to do with Parasite's success last year was the fact that Parasite was an amazing masterpiece of a film, but also the distribution method that they used, rolling it out slowly over time. So just they have a lot of really smart uh, brains over at Neon in terms of the distribution model. And they saw something here with Shirley that they acquired earlier this year after Sundance, where I think it debuted. And they picked another winner, I think. I think this film is is great. And Elizabeth Moss right now for me, even if I was skeptical at her of her at the start of the year, She's now got two of my favorite movies of 2020 so far. You know, granted, that can change a lot in the second half of the year when theaters reopen and we actually start getting movies, hopefully, again, on a consistent basis that we would be watching in theaters. That is, I think this is a movie that I'm not sure really how big of a release it would get in theaters. I'm sure it would get some, but but like a lot of neon films, probably a, a somewhat limited release. And that, that doesn't take away from the quality, though, because I think this is a really great performance from Elizabeth Moss. To your other point, though, around is it convoluted? I think it is a little bit convoluted. I think that's like one of the... One of the main things I have uh, against this film is that I think for the like for the like a solid hour of this film, it really just kind of was confusing to me what was going on. Part of that was setting the mood and the vibe. I mean, this this film is shot in a really interesting way. It has a lot of almost like it feels like it's like the image itself is a little bit blurred around the edges in a way that's supposed to be. It feels like like I don't know hallucinogenic almost and sometimes and, and the cinematography it, itself is like very claustrophobic a lot of low shots looking straight up at the people and it and it creates a really awesome i think psychodrama vibe to what you're talking about there i think it's really well done i think the score is really notable here as well i think the the, the sound design is is very strong um but yeah i think i was it was a little bit slow to start in terms of getting really fully engaged with the plot and the arcs that these characters were undergoing but I think after 30, 45 minutes and, and definitely after an hour, I was fully engaged and just was totally taken on a psychodramatic ride that this film took me on. And I, and I was absolutely there for it. And again, it, I think it's one of the best films of the year so far. Yeah, I mean, I won't hide the ball. I think this is my favorite movie of 2020 so far. I, uh, I was really impressed. I think this is a really interesting movie about sort of the struggle of women to create and the the way that um, the male dominated society kind of dictates who can create who or what they, what you know what they are supposed to create um, and it's the so this movie is kind of the story of these these two women who who might not form any sort of bond under different circumstances because they are very different people um, but because of you know, their, their desires and um, the sort of predicament that they find themselves equally in with their, with their husbands and with society in general. Um, there's, you know, a, an unlikely sort of uh, bond and friendship that, that forms between them. And I found it really sort of mesmerizing to watch. I, you know, I, I oftentimes watch movies in a couple of sittings and I did do that with this movie, but I like, I watched, I started watching this late one night and I, I got, you know, about halfway into it, decided to go to bed. And like, I was thinking about it the whole rest of the night. And like the, the next morning when I got up, I was immediately like, I got to go down and watch the rest of this movie. And I did. Um, so it, I, I found it gripping. And maybe the, the plot is a little hard to follow. I mean, I don't think the plot is like super important um, to the movie necessarily. I mean, I think there parts of it maybe, but I will say that I was grab. I thought the opening scene was actually actually grabbed me a lot for a couple of reasons that I will talk about. With, uh, I mean, it's a pretty simple scene with just Fred and Rose on the train, but I think it sets up one of the major themes of the the movie really nicely. And I think that Sarah 
Gubbins, I believe is the name of the screenwriter. I think that she, um, I think the script is really smart in the way that it sort of depicts the very sort of subtle, like nuanced ways that men will like uh, devalue the work of the like artistic creations of, of women. Like it's, it's not always the most obvious. It's, it's not always obvious what they're doing, but if you, you know, if you pay close attention, you can kind of see this gaslighting, uh, for lack of a better word, maybe that is going on over the course of this movie. And I think that Sarah, Sarah Gubbins, again, I think that's her name. Sarah um, Gubbins. Yeah. Yeah. Has a really good, um, understanding of sort again, the subtle nuanced ways that, that men just maybe with just the way that they speak or the way that they talk about women's work, um, you know, can, can devalue it. And, uh, I, I think that that is really key to, to the movie. And so, yeah, I think the performances are really, really strong, particularly, you know, the, the top three, Logan Lerman's character isn't as important. And so I think yeah. his performance doesn't stand out as much, but I mean, you talk about Elizabeth Moss, you talk about Michael Stuhlbarg, and you talk about o Odessa Young. I think the three of them are, are really, really um, excellent here in, in very different roles. Um, and yeah. Stuhlbarg was especially spellbinding for me. I mean, I, I talked about Moss a lot yeah. at the top, but I think Stuhlbarg was phenomenal in this film. Yeah, he's a, a really off-putting character, to say the least. But yeah, um, but yeah this, is, this look, this is another movie like that she, like. I, when I look at this movie on paper and it's like, it's directed by a woman, it is written by a woman, it is scored by a woman, it has like two powerful actresses in, you know, the leads basically. And nowadays when I see that on paper, I'm like, okay, this movie's probably going to be pretty good right now <laughs> because like females are killing it right now in terms of uh, like all, you know, female led productions that we are seeing being put out over the past um, couple Tell of years. Tell me about Black it, Christmas, Scott. Well, um, let's not go there, but uh, it is a it is a really, really strong time for female filmmakers. And, um, you know, that that is why we get so up in arms, uh, like the Oscars last year, for example, not just, you know, not just ignoring Greta Gerwig, but Marielle Heller and um, Celine Sciamma and Marine yeah, Matsukas. Right. A, t a ton of. Um, a ton well, of Celine, Celine Sciamma is different when France didn't even nominate her for the foreign land. For the international film, but yes, that I, is I true. But I mean, that might say something in and of itself. But yeah, uh, again, I mean, we, you know, uh, my two favorite movies of this year. You talk about this movie, and you talk about well, I, I mean, I guess Onward is. I kind of go back and forth between Onward and Emma, but Emma is up there in my top three. Also directed by a woman, um, mm -hmm. and Birds of Prey is another one of my favorites. Also directed by a woman. So. Um, Look, there's there's definitely a trend going on here. I'm not going to be like Scott I'm likes just, women. That's the, that's the trend that's <laughs> no, going on here. It's not like I, I'm not going to. I don't mean to sound like if I see a woman directed this film, it's automatically good. But um, nowadays, it seems like um, I mean, you know, it, last it, week the it, high note, Nisha Ganacha. Yes, a female-led yeah. film of some notoriety. You know, it's it's going to be good. I think that that women are just bringing different and interesting perspectives to the films that they are making right now, and uh, yeah. that is why I and others are responding so positively to them. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Look, like I've been a little bit more lukewarm on some of the films that you laid out there as some of your favorites of the year, but I think that it's still important, and you can still trust female filmmakers with making films that are done well. When you when you fund their movies, when you give them budgets, when you trust their vision and their work it's successful. And whether I give, you know, 
I mean, whether whether you give High Note four and a half stars or four stars or whatever, like or this movie, whatever score you end up giving, like it's still uh, these are still overall successful films that that you're seeing. And yes, I'm less positive on Birds of Prey, but in spite of what the media wants you to think, that movie wasn't that unsuccessful at, at the box office given its budget. Um, in, in spite of the narrative, anybody might want to tell you, but yeah, yeah. And it is doing something somewhat different from the rest of the DCEU movies, which I think is also yeah. also kind of gets to my point that women are just bringing different perspectives to what they're doing. But regardless, I'll get off my soapbox now, and I think we can move on to uh, the cast. Scott Elizabeth Moss obviously is the, is the lead here. She is the titular character. Shirley, you mentioned that she you know starred in The Invisible Man, another one of the best movies from this year that came out you know a month or so before. Uh, quarantine started, um, and you also mentioned her smell, right? Which was uh, a performance that she got a lot of praise uh, from last year. So she's really positioning herself as sort of uh, a primary figure in in indie cinema right now, um, yeah. and and killing it in doing so. I think. Do you think that she um, she kills it here as another? It, it must be said another like psycholo- highly psychological, like intense. Uh, emotionally racked performance like she she hasn't ha- necessarily gotten to have a lot of fun in these past few movies that she's done but i think she's turned out solid work what do you think about her work here yeah i, I can't remember if i sent this to you or i, I definitely read this somewhere that like good lord some, someone give elizabeth moss a romantic comedy just to like chill for a bit because mm. i mean you say that she hasn't done you know some li- any light-hearted roles you know recently has she ever done a i mean there was the kitchen last year that was maybe more of a comedy but I mean, uh, I think you're laughing at that movie more than you're laughing with it. I'm just trying to think like she was in Us last year as well. She's in the French even Dispatch the, later this even year. Even in the West that. Wing, she got kidnapped by terrorists. Her, oh, her, uh, her character yeah, yeah. arc was not one of the, the more uh, uh, humorous, I guess. Wow, I completely forgotten that she was in that. But yeah, she was in The Old Man and the Gun last year, which was, I think, a Robert Red. Was it Robert Redford? No, not Robert Redford. That was a... Yeah, Old Man and the Gun was Robert Redford. That was a couple oh, years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. Twenty eighteen, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the point is, like, she's uh doing very serious work. <laughs> I think is yeah. is the right way to say it. Ex- again, except for the kitchen, maybe. But that was a bit of a dud, or more than a bit of a dud. But yeah, I I think look, she's like I haven't necessarily been as big of a fan of her. Um, I hadn't seen, I didn't see her smell, and I hadn't seen a couple other things that she'd done. But the few times that I had seen her, like. I was like, yeah, this is like, she's fine. I don't I like it. Everyone has been raving about her for, I think, several years, at least on, you know, the indie side of things. And I, and I think this year for me, she's really proving it. And I think that this is a testament to that because, yes, it's a similar flavor of movie with like the psychological horror element as it was to The Invisible Man earlier this year. But it, again, it feels like an altogether different kind of performance where you have this person in The Invisible Man, this character that is going through this traumatic experience and dealing with relationship abuse. And there's definitely a little bit of relationship abuse uh, in the, in this film as well, certainly at least emotionally. But one of the things I've, I found is that I felt like that Elizabeth Moss character, although in both, in both senses is or in both movies is empowering, but there are very different types of empowering performances. I mean, she's someone who's trying to, you know, essentially fight for every inch in of like creative authority, basically she, and having to have this constant battle with with Michael Stuhlbarg's character here in um, in in the film and Shirley and uh, is it Stanley? That's his name. Yeah, Stanley. And he it, it's this it's this very different type of warfare that I feel like uh, she's having with like oppressive forces than she was with Invisible Man, where it was a little bit more actiony, a little bit more like studio driven, because it still was universal, even though it was a small budget. 
Um, and, and I think that you're really getting kind of all flavors of what Elizabeth Moss is capable of. And, and I really appreciate that. I feel like she's even even if she's sticking to similar um, genres, she's she's able to deliver different performances. And I know we've talked about some of the best act, the best actors and actresses are the ones who are able to do that, to give to be in similar roles, but give very different types of performance. I, mean, I think we talked about Saoirse Ronan in particular doing that earlier this year like it feels like she's in the same movie every single time but somehow she brings something different to the table and i think elizabeth moss is up there in her ability to do that and i think she puts that on display here and this character is wild like i think her character in invisible man is relatively straightforward for the most part i mean she's someone who you understand her perspective and you understand what she's going through and you understand that no one else understands what she's going through and you get this really deep sense of empathy for this character i think or for that character in that in in the invisible in invisible man but here, because of the way it's shot, because of the way the story is laid out, is a little. I still stick by that. It's a little bit convoluted. Maybe it doesn't ultimately matter that much for the overall themes of the film, but it's a convoluted storyline. You don't necessarily feel for this character right away, and I think that it takes a, it takes it's, it's a lot more interesting work being done both by the writers here, Sarah Gubbins, um, and Elizabeth Moss here with her performance to be a little bit more enigmatic, a little bit more uh, on the margins. Maybe is a better way to put it, like a little bit more in the shadows, so to speak. And doing things that are a little bit mysterious, that are a little bit off-putting, not really sure what to think about it. Uh, because, yes, you definitely see the toxic like, toxicity of the relationship that she's in with her husband. But I think that the movie is much more interested in, in, in exploring why that is and what that means and how these characters deal with those toxic relationships rather than doing something like the invisible man, which is like, all right, burn the whole thing down. Like, find find the guy, hold him accountable for you know his actions, which is a totally valid thing people people should be held accountable for these types of things but it's a very different type of movie very different approach and it's set in a very different time right and that's probably one of the reasons that lends itself to it and it's really fascinating and i think it's a really fascinating character study for several different characters here i mean there's three different main characters that you were talking about and surely maybe is the most enigmatic of them all yeah no uh, you use the word empowering and like i think that is the right word but you know you don't think that that's where the character is going to go at first um you know to, to some of your points as well i think that she is off-putting for sure at first i mean this first interaction that she has with rose there in the house and the stairs where she just kind of like tells her off and she's very like fixated on like rose's sexuality in particular and the fact that she is pregnant um being one thing that that shirley kind of fixates on um and you but you kind of come to understand why right i, I think that's that's key to why the performance does why you are able to eventually em empathize with her and uh why it is kind of empowering in the end because um and i mean i think this speaks to the strength of the direction and writing maybe that um her performance doesn't change really throughout the movie uh, in the way that she, you know shirley is portrayed but we understand why she is the way that she is maybe yeah. um and that helps us to empathize with with the character obviously because we see that she um has kind of been forced into being the sort of um off-putting reclusive figure that she is by um her, her husband to to some extent who um you know is kind of pressuring her to put out this new um uh, work and he is out with women you know every night like he he has a lot of mistresses as as we learn um you know later on in the movie and so there's really not much for for shirley to do because you know if she there's a big deal made about the fact she won't leave the house but you know if she leaves the house it's with her husband with you know the one time we see her leave the house she has to go to this sort of humiliating 
dinner where she just basically sees her husband, you know, flirting with his students and other faculty members and everything the, the whole night. And so we understand why she wants to just shut herself up and, um, and, and maybe why she gets involved too. Like this is part of the story as well is um, the, 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 the subject matter of the book that she is writing, right, is about this female student who disappeared. Um, and there's a, there's a really, I think, powerful scene between um, her and, and Michael Stuhlbarg where they're talking about the subject matter of the story and, um, and he's saying, oh, this is beneath you or whatever. And um, he's kind of like talking about the girl um, and saying that she was unimportant and all this stuff and like, you don't need to tell this story or whatever. And I can't remember exactly what the line is that she has, but it's something about like, she needs, she deserves to be seen or she needs to be seen or something like that. Um, and, and, and that, I think that scene is really key to um, understanding why um, Shirley, you know, what she sees in this particular story, right? She sees maybe uh, a woman who, again, was in this similar position to her and um, things went, went really badly for her. And so she wants to sort of rewrite the narrative of um, this woman and maybe of, of women like her in general. And I, I mean, that's a, I'm not really talking too much about the performance here. It's probably a little bit of a tangent, but all that is to say that I think Moss is giving all of these layers to, to the character. And um, I, I think it is really effective. And um, e even though at, at times she, she is off putting, again, the strength of the filmmaking helps us understand why. And when those emotional moments do come, when we are supposed to connect with her, like that scene that I just mentioned, um, I think she really makes them count. And in particular, her, her chemistry that she has with Odessa Young, with Rose is also, also really strong. And, um, some of their scenes together are almost like pulse pounding a little bit um so the tension between these two characters but go watch portrait um, of a lady on fire <laughs> yeah no i i will say like when i was watching some of the scenes between them i was like i feel like this is how people were feeling during portrait of a lady on fire and yeah, it, times 10 I, I think portrait of a lady on fire is yeah. actually a far superior film to this one but yeah uh, i mean in uh, that in that people would agree with that but i, I yeah. so i mean i think i do need to give it another chance for sure but yes um, you should anyway long-winded there but um other performances, Scott, uh, Michael Stuhlbarg, Odessa Young, Logan Lerman are kind of the major figures here. Yeah. You've talked about Michael Stuhlbarg. You want to highlight maybe what you what it is you really appreciate about his performance? Yeah, I mean, you talked about he's playing a really out there character. And, and I think that on on the page or on the screen that that feels right. But also something about him feels like hauntingly familiar. And maybe that's just no, me. Yeah. I don't know. I, but it, I don't it, think this feels like a real all, person. Yeah. This feels like a real person, Absolutely. like a real professor. And like, look, I'm not going to pretend to understand like the politics of, you know, or bureaucracy of universities and colleges, but this like really like this very tenured professor taking power in a way of controlling other people's abilities and opportunities to get tenure. Like he has like, I mean, he has like, there's like three different relationships that he has. He has the relationship with Fred, the relationship with um, Odessa Young's character. I don't know why I'm forgetting all Rose. That's it. Yeah. And then, and then Shirley, he have these different relationships and it, and he is just like, so it's so interesting, the different ways he tries to exert power over all three of them. And that sort of like toxic masculinity that you see in like three very different ways I just I find it really impressive that you're able I mean one to write that so again going back to the writing here and and the amount of depth and and uh, quality 
I guess, you know, character that that's being written onto the screen, but then the execution of that well as well, like the actual performance of it by Stuhlbarg being able to convey, you know, just how, you know, again, kind of ridiculous of a person he is when you actually just write out everything that you see on the screen, but in the moment feeling like this feels like a real person. This feels like something that I would expect someone to do. Maybe not the, you know, this exact person or maybe someone similar. I don't know, but it feels real. And a huge part of that is the way that, that, all of those uh, different characteristics are delivered by Michael Stuhlbarg, the way that he tries to hold court basically in the, in this house um, while also, you know, again, exerting authority over Fred who he wants to basically, he looks down on because he comes from a privileged background and he thinks that everything's been handed to him in life. He, you know, basically exerts power, not basically he exerts power over Rose by essentially making him, making her his housemaid uh, while also trying to flirt with her, at that more more than more than flirt um with with her in different scenes and moments of film and then of course exerts power over Shirley by basically being I don't know like having veto power over her work and essentially trying to exert his authority over what she creates and and you and what is what is beneath her or what is at her level to create to use the language of the film and the language that you were using earlier and and I I find this to actually be the most impressive uh, performance for me just because yes I think Shirley's super layered super mesmerizing of a character, but I, I find Michael Stuhlbarg to be an even stronger performance. And I, and I don't mean that to slight uh, Elizabeth Moss's performance whatsoever. I think it, it is that good. Uh, probably my favorite, I guess you'd call this a supporting role, probably my favorite supporting role of the year so far. Yeah, no, I mean, he is like, he's so odious and, and pretentious. Like he yeah. makes your skin crawl at times. Right. Yeah, Especially absolutely. in, in absolutely. some of those scenes with Rose, right. When he's like putting his hands on her and stuff like that, it's, Ugh. but there is like this sickly charisma about him. Right. Too that yeah. you understand why he is able to draw um, all, all of these women into his circle, I guess, because they're just kind of looking for something different, I guess, in a, in a partner than Shirley. And he has power and he ha like, he's yeah, a tenured absolutely. professor at this university. He's like well-regarded and, that I'm like he uses that power dynamic with his students, I'm sure, and with he certainly uses life, that, yeah. Well, yeah, and he certainly uses that power dynamic, and you know, in his own house, right, with with Shirley, with Fred, and to an extent also with Rose, who the whole goal there was for her to take classes, right, and to like, be academically engaged, and instead she's at home tending to Shirley or tending to the house all day. And again, I think it's it's just such a well written character and such a well delivered character on the screen. Yeah, it's exactly how he and and you know other men seem seem to want it to be yeah. um and if he can't have uh i mean if shirley won't do these sort of duties that he feels she is supposed to be doing it's you almost wonder like right does he does he invite them into the house specifically for this purpose probably so right oh, so yeah so that I, assume, can have, I absolutely assume so it's to have know. more control over over both of them because he doesn't see any he, he doesn't seem that interested in reading um Fred's dissertation, right? That is one of the elements that Fred keeps wanting him to read this dissertation. And, and he's like, he's literally like, I don't have to read it. I already know that it's going to be mediocre or whatever. Yeah. Um, and there's that, there's a, again, a great scene between him and him and Shirley where he talks about having read it or whatever. And he was like, it was incredibly competent or something like that or whatever. And how he's like, so upset because it was competent like how he would rather he would have preferred that it was just terrible or um that you know that, that would have been interesting that was really good yes um and again it's just pretentious pat but i mean the scenes he has with um 
with Shirley are really strong because there's just this chaotic energy going on from both of them really. Um, and they like push each other's buttons, but it kind of draw in a way it draws them to each other. Yeah. Um, so I was going to say in a sickly way, you push could, each other's buttons. Yeah. Yeah. Cause absolutely in a sickly way, you like, I think by the end of this, I'm like, you understand why Shirley is married to him, I think. Mm -hmm. And you know, as, as much as and as toxic as the relationship is between these two characters, you know, he is someone who ultimately does like challenge her and empower and well, empower her. And I use that with like a big asterisk, like empower her to like write the things she wants to write because like defiantly, like she defiantly writes these things. And when he reads them and they're good, like his like like his like duty as like the scholar that he is like he's not going to deny something is good uh once he actually consumes it right the whole point about fred is that he doesn't actually read it he, he doesn't want to read it he doesn't he's not going to read it he knows what it is already but he believes in his wife's ability to write but he wants to have power over that like he wants to still collect the power there like he like he wouldn't be with her if she couldn't if she couldn't be a good author like that's clearly clearly not what it is and and so you, i think you understand that like he pushes her um, in a very toxic way to be the writer she can be. And she likes that about, I think she ultimately likes that about him and, and it's why they're together. And it's why when you have that scene, uh, when she goes out to that dinner party to that, I don't know even what you'd call it, uh, it other than a dinner party there, uh, gala ball, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's why she turns to, you know, when, when she has that kind of showdown with the Dean's wife, or she's like, he'd be bored with you in a week because you don't have any talent and you don't have the talent that I have. Um, and we may, we may fight constantly and he may say terrible things about me, but he loves, he, he loves me because of what I'm capable of. And he wants that. He wants that. He wants to be able to control that. And that's why he keeps coming back. And I, and I find that a really interesting character study. Yeah. I mean, exactly. And that's, you know, why I talk, I talk up front about how this is a movie about like the struggle of women to create, right? Like that's part of the struggle is that sometimes to create your best art, you have to, forget about what is best for you, like at, per, as a person and who, you know, the, the type of people that you should be with, the type of partners you should be having, because, you know, you, you do wonder if, if she wasn't in this relationship with Stanley, would she have produced the, you know, the dark, uh, often, often really dark work. I mean, obviously the lottery is the most famous story that, that she wrote and is, is mentioned in this movie. Um, and, and, you know, I think gets to her strength as a writer, but maybe she's only able to go to those dark places because of, you know, what, what she has to deal with in her own life. But I, I also think Odessa Young is really strong um, as Rose. Um, I wasn't super familiar with her outside of Assassination Nation, which is a movie that the performances aren't really necessarily the standout element of that movie. But um, I think she is, you know, like I said, I think the, the chemistry between her and Moss is, is really strong and that she um, has maybe uh, the most satisfying or interesting arc over the course of the movie um, because Shirley kind of gets to like mentor her in a way uh, of, you know, maybe how she can break away or at least learn to live with this relationship that she is going to be in with Fred, obviously, because Fred starts following in, in the footsteps of Stanley and he very quickly, like the well. first week. Yeah, um, he he has mistresses as well. He's you know staying out late or whatever. He, the Shakespeare Society or whatever. Yes, he he disguises it as like you know he's doing something really important. Again, maybe that says something about um, men trying to control um, literature. But um, I think I think Odessa Young, like I said, is strong in that she 
like she starts off as like you know you think she's going to be the the prim and proper housewife maybe uh like that was indicative of the era but you see shirley really brings out the side of her that she wants to be the uh creative side and the fact that shirley is asking her and not stanley to like read the novel right and they're going through the pages together um yeah there's just there's just a connection between these two actresses there's a vibrancy when they're on screen together that like i said it's it's electric to watch in, in the best moments for sure yeah i i agree she i mean look like you talk you've already briefly talked about the tension I mean, the sexual tension between her and, and Shirley and Elizabeth Moss's character, which is a weird thing to say about these two characters. And the difference between that, that these two and Portrait of a Lady on Fire is that, like, I think you really understand the sexual chemistry between the two leads in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And there's something, like, really raw and emotional about this. And this is raw and emotional, too, in a completely different way. And it's and but it's all like raw and emotional in like kind of a weird off putting way. Um, and that's not and it's not a bad thing. It's just like very different. Uh, but the but the energy and the tension is still is still there, and it's super interesting coming from I think these particular two performances uh, in the context of this particular film. Um, but yeah, I think that you get like you know serious gay vibes uh, from, from these characters, and uh, but in, in a really in a really interesting way, in a way that I think really speaks volumes to that theme that you're talking about, like the authority of women to create the things they want to create and live the lives they want to live, right? Like maybe. I mean, like they're probably not that. Like they are attracted. I think they are attracted to each other in to the, each other's in what, energy, like well, to the energy and what they yeah. represent. Like and, and like the shared experience that these two are going through with their husbands. Uh, you know, obviously different stages in their lives, but like clearly on the same path. In so, at least in some ways. I mean, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think it's implied at all that Rose is going to go on to become some super famous. Well, super famous maybe too strong, but famous author. Uh, but they're certainly experiencing share a shared experience around their relationship with men and i think that that is something that they they really bond over and and uh they really long for each other to escape that reality and i think that that is a really a really good contributor to the plot and i think that odessa young plays that really well because i think she's like like she's like the the protagonist of the film ultimately like it's her story that the film is is pushing forward and moving along with even if it is a biopic at the end of the day uh, of shirley of shirley jackson uh, but yeah, I think that's that you have to really at some point be invested in Odessa Young's character. And and because of the way, again, the way the film shot, the way the film looks and the way the film is, I think that that requires a lot because there's obviously a lot of depth to work with. But you really do need to deliver performance because if you deliver a flat performance, like I think that you're, you're never going to get engaged with this film. Yeah. And I mean, there's a really interesting to what you're talking about, like sort of blurring of the lines between what is truth and what is fiction. With yeah, this there's character. that too. Yeah. 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 Because she is like, obviously quite literally at the, towards the end of the movie is like fulfilling the role of this, again, this girl that Shirley is writing the story about. And maybe Shirley, it feels like, it seems like Shirley feels like if she can save Rose, then maybe she can, you know, atone for not saving this girl or whatever um who um was maybe in her orbit um before she went missing and all of this stuff um and so that that element of it is is really interesting but yeah no i i think that they handle like the the sexual tension in the right way because they don't go that far down that road right i think it is just again a product of like their their energy is so strong with each other their connection is so strong and like it manifests itself in in different ways and yeah. one of the ways it manifests itself is you know in in a sexual way at times but it's yeah. not like 
they're going to run off together and be a happy couple or anything. I don't think that that is what the movie wants. Yeah. You, I, don't, I don't think that that is what the movie wants for the characters. No, I certainly, I certainly don't think that's what it wants for Shirley. Cause again, I think I already talked about why I think Shirley is like so invested ultimately in this relationship that she's in with, with us, uh, with Stanley. I, I don't know if that's necessarily the same for Odessa Young's character. I think, I think one of the things that you could really ask yourself is like, is her driving, like riding off at the end of the movie in this car and leaving leaving Stanley's house, et cetera, with Fred. Is that really the ending that we want or feels right with the film? And I think that what we want, probably not. Feels right, maybe. I think that's up for debate or not. Um, because you know, she she has been uh, I don't know, put, you know, through the fire, I guess, so to speak, with Fred and understanding who she's married, right? Who she had the shotgun wedding with. Right. And, and who, you know, maybe maybe they were always going to get married in the in the way things were going. But who she essentially eloped with. Well, not essentially. They even say it like they eloped. He got um, disowned by his family or she got disowned by his family. I can't remember. One of them got disowned by their families when they eloped. And that's the situation that they found themselves in. And uh, what she comes to realize, what Rose comes to realize is that Fred's not the person that uh, he she thought he was. And maybe it's a, it, and maybe that's always been the case, and I, that doesn't really matter whether it's always been the case or not. But by the end of the film, once you've ha- once she's had this experience with Shirley, what's the outcome of that? What has she learned, and where does she go with that? And, and the story doesn't tell you that, but it certainly, uh, I think, it poses an interesting question for the end of the film. Yeah, no, I was going to bring up that that ending for sure, and I think I, I agree with you. Like, if if you contrast it with the Invisible Man, right? Like, in the at the end of the Invisible Man, like. Uh, Elizabeth Moss's character does achieve like some sort of victory, right? Like she is able to, I mean, she kills her, her, she takes her own justice. Right. But that, that type of ending would not have been right. Obviously for this movie, it would not have been right for like, like I said, for like Shirley and Rose to run off together from for Rose to run off from her husband or any, like it is, it is very clear that throughout the movie that because of the way this society is like, the only victories that you're uh, able going to be able to achieve maybe as, as a woman are temporary or are, um, you know, muted. They're, they're not these big grand victories that, um, you know, you, you might get like, yeah, like I said, like in the invisible man or something. And her victory is, is not like maybe what we want for her that she would just leave Fred altogether. But her victory is that she maybe has learned a little bit of, how she can live with Fred and still be the person that she wants to be from Shirley, because yeah. obviously that's kind of the situation that Shirley finds herself in. Of she wants to be this creator, she wants to make the best literature that she she can make, and she over the years has found the way to do that while still living with Stanley, even maybe at the cost of her own sanity to some to some degree. Yeah, and I think one of the things one of the things that I struggle with here is is connecting the dots here because I think by the end of the film it's it's not clear to me that that Rose has necessarily understood or developed some sort of like agreement or coming to terms with how to live with Fred, right? Like it's clear she's had this experience and she's seen Shirley do it, but it's not evident to me that she's the same person as Shirley. She's going through the same experience certainly, but because these characters are ultimately different i mean i mean rose to our knowledge is not the kind of like create like the creator right that that um 
that Shirley is. And so I but think she that, does that, have some inclination towards like learning something like, again, like you said, she wants to go to class. She wants sure. to be more than the traditional conception of a woman is. At the well, time. Yeah. Cause she, she was trying to go back and finish her degree. I think yeah. the way they framed it. Right. But I, I think that's over, overall to say that I think if there was anything that was lacking a little bit, it, it's, it's the, you know, the, the finishing touches on the arc of, of Rose, because I think you certainly get the end, like the, the full end points of, even if you look at the like those four characters, the other three arcs, I think you get a clear start and end point for both of them. But again, I think that the arc with Rose is maybe a little bit of a question mark at the end. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but when you have resolution for the other characters, it makes you wonder why there isn't necessarily as much resolution for for your protagonist. But that that's just me. And it's ultimately a small, a small issue that I had. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree. I think there is a little bit of uncertainty about how exactly is she going to make this work going forward? What exactly? Yeah specifically how she learned from Shirley. But uh, I think I think you're right to highlight that maybe as, as a small moment of weakness. The only other thing I wanted to talk about, Scott, is sort of the theme that resonated the most with me. And, and I will say that like, this is me being an English major here. Like I, if you're an English major, I think Nerd. this is a really interesting movie to watch for you. But because there's a lot of discussion like in English classes and stuff in, in college and everything about how you know what is the canon how how do works make it into the canon right who who gets to decide what what works go into the literary canon and i, I mean again not not to act like i'm some sort of expert or anything in this but i did take a, a course in feminist literature and we talked a lot about cool um, dead white women love it yeah <laughs> we talked a lot about the ways like that women's works are often like forced out of the canon um by men and uh, by the way men talk about them and that's again that's what i think the screenplay does so well here right? from the very beginning in that first scene on the train right they are uh rose has just led read the lottery and she describes the ending to fred and their reactions to it fred's reaction is oh that's horrible and um uh, because you know talking about the townspeople stoning uh you know the woman at the end yeah and and Rose's reaction is, it's amazing. Like, it's it's great. Like One of the and, best things I've ever read. Yeah. You see this repeated throughout the film, right? The way that men talk about Shirley's work or, or women's work. Like, it's it trivial. Is, it's trivial. Even, even, it's more trivial. Well, it is trivial, but it is when they even when they are complimenting it, they are, there's always some sort of like backhanded nature to it. Like one, a couple of examples, like when, um, when she she talks to the dean right at the the party and he describes her work as like terrifically horrible or something like that and like even as he's complimenting right he's saying it is terrific and he's he obviously was um he was emotionally affected by it he's also like calling it horrible at the end of the movie right stanley refers to her as my horrifically talented wife and even even at the beginning even in the first interaction between um between Shirley and Rose, when Rose is still sort of mimicking this, you know, person she thinks she's supposed to be or whatever, she uses the same, she's like, it's thrillingly horrible or something like that. That's how she describes the work. And so there's just like those subtle things of like, that by, by calling it like horrible, right? You are, you are devaluing, you are like saying that this is not something I'm gonna read again. This is not something I would necessarily like recommend to other people. This is something that is disturbing to read and, you know, not necessarily something that I would put as part of the canon. And you like don't know how to reconcile your feelings about the story. Like again, with the Dean, he's obviously like very affected by the story, but he 
he like tries to act like it makes him feel horrible or whatever, that he doesn't really understand the feelings that he's feeling because he doesn't understand how a woman could make him feel these types of feelings. And, and so there's just a really interesting thread throughout, I think about how women's work, you know, women's literature in particular gets devalued and um, you know, what sort of women are allowed to do with their writing. Again, that scene where Stanley is like, no, this is, you're not, I don't want you to write this story about uh, the, the missing girl or whatever. Like maybe women aren't supposed to be writing like genre stories or whatever like this. Um, like he implies. If only he'd said that you would have a field day. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I think that that indication is there, but anyway, uh, that I probably wasn't super coherent in saying that, but I think that that, that, uh, was the thing that resonated the strong, the strongest with me. And I think one of the real strengths of the screenplay is um, the way that it, it does that very subtly, right? I mean, it, it's no character comes out and says like, oh, this is just women's literature. Let's destroy it all or whatever. But you can just see in the way that they talk about it, that they don't value it. They don't treat it in the same way that uh, they don't talk about it in the same way that they would talk about a man's work probably and that uh, they are determined to sort of keep themselves at a distance from it so that it cannot be part of the canon be considered alongside men's work. Yeah, that's definitely not the theme that resonated the most with me. And I think that you definitely dove deeper than I did, but that makes sense based on your background, like you were saying. And just right, like yeah. I, I thought more about like the toxic masculinity involved with with Michael Stuhlbarg's character. And I, I think it totally makes sense. And it's it, it's clearly there. And it's it's what it's what grabs it. I mean, it's one of the special things about this film, right? It's, there's so many things that you can latch on to and, and dive deep on and really think a lot about, right? And I think that we've we've lasered in on two different things. And, and both those things are very worth thinking about. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think that speaks to the strength of the film, right? That we yeah. can get two Dude. completely different things out of it, but equally valid ideas, I think, and and uh, you know, they're very well conveyed in the movie. So yeah. take that um, parasite. With, <laughs> yeah, with that, Scott, I think we can move on to our wrap up for Shirley. What was your favorite scene or moment from this movie? I oddly enough, I kind of like the final, like the borderline incoherent final, like scenes of of the film where it's like interlocking these two scenes of one is is rose and fred leaving the you know stanley and, and shirley's house they're they're leaving for good they've they've been evicted uh of a sorts i think stanley told them that it's time to move out basically uh, for one reason or another and that is is interlocked with or interwoven with this scene of shirley and rose going down this path that reportedly the the girl that Shirley has been writing about ha- went down and that was the last time that she was seen and they get to the end of the path and it's this massive cliff overlooking upstate well it's supposed to be upstate it's supposed to be Vermont but it's upstate New York I suppose and yeah I think that's a really powerful scene I had for a while it really took it took me a minute to really kind of compose what was exactly going on because it is a very I don't know frenetic and uh, i don't know hallucinogenically shot scene i don't know a better way to put it it's like very it's very claustrophobic and it's very unclear i think what is what is real and what is not real i think because the narrative that you're getting there is this really deep and really emotional experience happening uh, on this trail and on the cliff with this you know very finite or kind of opposite of that scene that's happening with you know rose and fred driving away from the house where that you know the movie has taken place, and I think it's it's an interesting juxtaposition, and I really enjoyed that part of 
uh, that that kind of finale, even if it w- it was still even then a little bit convoluted, but not necessarily in, in this case, not in a bad way. Yeah, and one thing that is I think is strong in that scene that we didn't necessarily mention was the score. I think is really really good in this movie. Uh, t- yeah, Tamar Kali is the name of the woman who did the score, and I think it's it's a very like traditionally like beautiful orchestral score throughout the movie, and I think that that that's important, right? Again, to to convey that, no, this is not supposed to be off-putting. These characters are not uh, necessarily supposed to be off-putting. There's there's a beauty here to the connection that they have formed and what they are trying to accomplish and maybe what they do eventually accomplish. I think that the score is really important to conveying that. And so I, I was a big fan of what Tamar Kali did here with the score. But um, as for my favorite scene, I mean, I've talked about a lot of them. I do love that the way that the opening scene sets up what to me was the central theme. I guess I'll go to that scene between um, between Shirley and Stanley where they are arguing about her novel and the fact that first the fact that um, that he hasn't let her she hasn't let him read it um, and that she's let Rose read it. And then, um, you know, him talking about how this work is not right for her to be writing it's beneath her whatever she doesn't need to be writing about this common girl whatever and her you know very emotional response about like she deserves to be seen or whatever and, and you know she's she you know she's not just talking about the girl she's talking about herself she's talking about rose she's talking about a lot of women and so i thought that that was just a really uh powerful scene in the movie but um let's put a score on it scott yeah this is a really really strong film it's a 9.0 9.3 for me. Favorite movie of the year uh, so far. We'll see what the rest of the movie or the rest of the year has to offer. But hey, maybe the way things are going right now, it, it probably going to end up in my top 10. And, you know, it would be deservedly so if it did, because I think this is a really, really strong piece of work. It's not for everyone. Um, but I think that if you, you know, if, if you're listening to our review, if you think it sounds interesting, give it a chance. It's on Hulu. Um, so you can, you can stream it there and, uh, it's another hit for neon and for Elizabeth Moss. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Fun, fun neon follow-up. We were talking about the, the hits they've had. So this year they had the lodge, which you just watched the other day. I saw maybe even last solid. night. Solid, Very yeah. solid last night. Yeah. Clemency portrait of a lady on fire parasite little monsters, which is, I, I don't, I'm not sure about what, about that one yet. Um, I never watched it. I think it's on Hulu. I think that's got a. I think that has Lupita Nyong'o. Lupita Nyong'o, yeah. Yeah, Lupita Nyong'o. Um, but anyway, uh, Monos, which I think it was like a documentary film, maybe Loose, Honeyland, which is an amazing documentary. Uh, last year was also nominated in the Best International Feature category, even though it was a documentary. Uh, last year, uh, Wild Rose. You're right about that. Uh, Little Woods, which neither of us ended up watching. I don't think. I still need to see that. They had the Apollo 11 documentary as well which was great the year in 2018, they had three identical strangers, which is probably my favorite documentary from that year. Besides free solo. It's kind of a toss up between those two assassination nation, um, which you just mentioned earlier, Borg versus McEnroe. Yeah. I, I mean, Shia LaBeouf. I Tanya, ah, I Tanya. Yeah. The bad batch was one of their first films. All right. Oh, gosh. <laughs> crazy stuff. Yeah. They, they've yeah. been around for two and a half years. It's, it's like crazy. They've, they've have not been around that long. And you see sort of like, uh, you know, their their major competitor, I guess, if, if you want to say with what they're doing is, is A24 probably. And you see that they're sort of uh, on the same trajectory as A24 in terms of, you know, if you look at what A24 was doing early on, it was movies like Spring Breakers and stuff, which I mean, that movie has its defenders. But um, I think 
it took, you know, two and a half years. It took to like the point where we are now with Neon uh, to when they started churning out like, hey, this is a really reliable studio. They're making yeah. quality stuff that no one else is making. And so I think that, you know, A24 gets all the love. We talk about a lot of their movies. We praise their movies a lot. They make our favorites list a lot too. But I think that Neon is definitely putting itself right there next to A24 yeah. and deserves to be talked about. Uh, as much as they do, and maybe they can start selling shirts to someone other than David Ehrlich for his baby. <laughs> yeah, I think that it's an interesting topic. I don't think of Neon as a as I don't think of A twenty four as Neon's direct competitor. I think of someone like Bleecker Street or one of the like, actual like really like smaller indie studios. But you when you win you when you win Best Picture and you start and you start punching above that that smaller indie category, I think I think it's inevitable not to not compare them to to A twenty four. Yeah, and I mean, like, I think, like, The Lodge, for example, which I watched last night, it feels so much like an A24 horror movie at times. Like, the the um, cinematography, just the the a- atmosphere of the movie. The, way the, the A24 horror movies always have really strong atmosphere, and I think The Lodge... Well, that's just because uh, no indie, indie, no other indie studio is making horror films. Like, I don't... I mean, yeah. Street ...or anyone else is making horror films, but yeah. yeah. Fair enough, but I, I think that they deserve to be considered alongside... Uh, E24 in terms of definitely um, what they're doing in the world of independent film right now. But that's a tangent. Um, we're going to take a break now. And Scott, after the break, we're going to talk about, uh, there's not much news. So we're going to talk about a couple of TV shows that uh, we've been watching plot against America and uh, normal people. So after the break, we will get to that. So this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, uh, I mentioned before the break that we're going to talk about a couple of TV shows now in lieu of uh, news, which there wasn't much except Ari Aster is making a four-hour comedy for his next film, which uh, signed me up, baby. Um, but not, Scott, imagine not a haha comedy. Yeah, who knows? I mean, people were laughing during during Midsommar. Like oh, I said, I think not for the reasons that Ari Aster wanted, though. Yeah, exactly. Not not for the reasons that. They should have been laughing, but um, just, you know, dummies can't understand. But um, yes. TV show-wise... up your very large ivory tower and look down yes, at everyone else. I will, I will. Um, <laughs> TV show-wise, Scott, we've, we've gotten a lot of new stuff coming out during quarantine. I mean, yeah. um, that's that's been been good, right? Because, you know, we have only have maybe one movie coming out a week, right? Like, like whatever movie you. we talk about on the podcast usually. Um, yeah. So you need something else to fill the hours. And there's been a lot of stuff dropping on streaming services. You wanted to talk about um, the HBO series Plot Against America, um, sort of alternate history, I think, based on a Philip Roth novel. Um, yes. Tell us about it. Yeah, absolutely. So you're absolutely right. It is based off the novel of the same name called The Plot Against America, which is really it's like an alternative history slash memoir at the same time, because the book is told from the first person perspective, uh, like the character's name is Philip. It it is supposed to be Philip Roth, uh, but it's an alternative history. So it's not actually what happened. Right. Um, The whole crux of The Plot Against America, like a couple, I think like Man in the High Castle, for example, is like another alternative history show that kind of focuses on World War II, or at least the aftermath of, well, The Plot Against America is, is kind of also intricately tied in World War II. It's set in uh, across, I think, uh, about a year and a half. Basically, every 
there's six episodes. It's a mini series, and and each one is set in a different time. Like time skips forward between every episode, so it's not like it's not like each one is an immediately an immediate follow up to each uh, each previous episode. But it's set over the course of a couple years. Uh, it follows this uh, Jewish family in a Jewish suburb of New York City. Uh, the characters, like the main characters' family name, are the Levins. Um, the main kind of the it's really an ensemble cast uh, and i'll go into more about that in, in a second but it, yeah so based off philip roth alternative history i mean philip roth i think and he think is a nobel prize winner right didn't he get the nobel prize for literature at some point probably yeah, yeah very well regarded yeah very well regarded out there and a very well regarded uh showrunner and director and creator as well for the miniseries and david simon who's probably best known for creating and writing and executive producing all five seasons of the wire as well as several other series since then, including I think Treme, which is about new mm-hmm. Orleans. And I think, uh, another one as well. I can't remember the name of it right now, but I think it came out, uh, a couple years ago. I've completely, I'm completely blanking on it right now, but that, those are the things that David Simon's best known for. I mean, many people regard the wire as one of the greatest series of television ever made. And I think that this is a very different type of series than The Wire. I mean, first off, this is a mini series. It's only six episodes, so obviously very different from The Wire in that sense. But it's a really, really powerful and impactful um, miniseries, given the context of the immediate times. I mean, yes, this was, of course, made uh, with the context of the Trump administration. I mean, we've, we've been, I mean, the series has been in production for a couple of years, but the presidency has been running for even longer than that. But I think intentionally or unintentionally, Philip Roth has created a, a kind of a, a alternative history that feels like it's not actually that far off from some of the social climate that we're seeing nowadays. I mean, Philip Roth, I don't even think I don't think he's alive any longer. I think he's passed since since uh, his book was written in before this. Actually, you know, I say that and that I don't think that's necessarily true. Actually, I take that back. I'm, I'm not sure about that. But anyway, so this series is again. It's, so it's set around World War Two. It's in the early 1940s. Uh, like 1941-ish to 43 or 44. Honestly, it's it's hard for me to remember. And it's set in an in alternate reality where uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, doesn't win a third term of presidency. And instead, Charles Lindbergh, who, of course, is a real-life person, a real-life American hero uh, for what he did in, in terms of... Um, flight. Flight, yeah, flight and flying across... The Atlantic Ocean going back and forth and doing these sort of nonstop flights and things like that. And he is this sort of like popular figure, you know, not not unlike our current president from before uh, he became president, that the Republican Party in, in the television show in this alternate history rallies around to defeat FDR, specifically on the topic of staying out of the war. They were like Charles Lindbergh's core policy was anti-war, staying out of out of the war um, against these Germany. When the parties were different, it must be said. Well, yeah. <laughs> the parties I mean, had well, different opposite ideologies. Well, I think the main reason for that is that uh, Charles Lindbergh might be a little bit of a fascist. And that's uh, the that's the real reason why he wasn't. He's, he's the whole, and, and this is a real, I think the most interesting part about this is that this is an alternate history. It's taking things and sets you up with this belief that there are things, like these things are not real, but it draws on so much so many other things that are real because Charles Lindbergh really did briefly consider running for president at this time period. He really did campaign under the slogan America first. This was a real campaign slogan that his campaign briefly used. And it's one that the current administration uses quite a lot. And it's this whole idea that America should keep to America's business, stay out of the war. And 
Jews aren't really Americans. They're not real Americans because they want to drag you into this war on the continent. Like they are loyal to the Jewish people, not to America. And it's this really fascinating uh, case study in alternate history following this family to the Levens. It stars sort of the central family of Al. So the central family is Bess, who's played by Zoe Kazan. She's the mother of the Levin household. Morgan Spector plays Herman, who's the father. And then the two children two sons uh sandy and philip who are played by people who i don't think they've probably ever been in anything before it doesn't really matter who they are but bess's sister is played by winona Ryder, whose name's evelyn john turturro is also in this in this as rabbi lionel bingelsdorf who is this sort of charismatic um jew like rabbi who goes into the camp of of Charles Lindbergh and supports Charles Lindbergh and supports this really interesting exploration of, and becomes this kind of figure who is this exploration of this idea of someone who is sort of betraying the cause, right? Like he, like what he, what he believes that from the inside, he can influence the policies uh, that are being developed by Lindbergh and believes that Lindbergh is this genuine, this genuine person who doesn't actually hate Jews, but just cares about staying out of the war, right? He believe he drinks the Kool-Aid. He believes the rhetoric that's being told rather than the sub, than the undertones and the subtext of what's being said. And it, it I mean, look, I won't, I won't have any spoilers, but that's a, obviously a huge plot device. And, and the reason that he's connected to this Levin family is that he uh, is the lover and eventual husband of Evelyn, who is again, Bess's sister there played by Winona Ryder. And I think uh, one of the standout performances in this show, I, I guess I'll, I'll just kind of go through point by point here and stand, standout performances. I think Zoe Kazan is absolutely incredible in this show. I think she's like the rock of the show. There's really no main character. It's kind of the nature of this type of show. It's like a true ensemble performance, but Zoe Kazan is an absolute rock. I, I loved her in the big, uh, the big sick. And I think she's just doing incredible stuff here in the plot against America. I think that the show, one of the major complaints about the show is that it's a little bit oddly play or placed, or when I say oddly paced, it's just slow. It's very slow starting out and takes a while to really build up and build the tension uh, because it's the kind of show it is. It, it's like this creeping sense of dread that the whole show that everything's getting worse, you know, fascism, like America's kind of sinking into fascism. Like, will they just completely sink into this whole idea of, of Nazi Germany and, and ship off their Jewish population uh, in a way? And I think that it's really interesting how it explores that. And it's really slow paced because of that. But I didn't mind that. Some people might mind that a little bit more than I did. But I think through that slow pacing, regardless of what you think, there's a couple performances that I think really pull you through and really ground you throughout the entire show. Zoe Kazan is one of them. And then kind of on the other end of that spectrum, I think Winona Ryder is the other. And she's someone, again, you talk about out there characters. I mean, like the, the arc that you see Evelyn go through is just wild in, in this in this show. I mean, uh, she's someone who, as a character, is kind of an outcast from her family because she hasn't married. Like she hasn't she hasn't started a family of her own. She takes care of their ailing mother who has Alzheimer's and dementia and, and, and like that and uh, ends up basically has a bunch of affairs with married men at the start of the show. And she's kind of thought of as this person who's never going to be able to start a family. She's never going to be able to do her motherly or womanly duty uh, and, and start a family. And, and she really views herself, I think through that lens of failure. And then she happens to, uh, you know, get to know and be, start a relationship with and marry this, this rabbi, this very well-to-do rabbi who has ingratiated himself to the president, to the president's family, like to the president's wife and is, and is, found himself in a position of power and great respect within this particular sphere. And that is like gold to Evelyn, right? Like she, like her, this, this, you know, her entire adult life being this failure and not being able to start her family is like fixed 
by starting this relationship. And she, again, not unlike the person that she's in a relationship with, she drinks the Kool-Aid of being in a relationship and buys into everything that's going on. And, you know, when the cards, you know, finally lay down in the last couple episodes, you understand the damage that was done. And she has to reckon with the damage that was done and the costs that she made. And, you know, as outlandish as this character is at times, I don't think there's ever a point uh, where you don't work, especially given the current political climate where you don't understand you know, the cognitive dissonance that's maybe happened within this character to get to the point, the outlandish point um, that it, it gets to. And I, and I find it really interesting. And those two characters are, are great, but I think the whole ensemble cast here is really interesting. Most of the subplots and the different narrative themes and and, and um, sub stories that are happening here are pretty interesting. There's some that are pretty different from the book because again, like I was saying, the book is told from a per first person perspective of like a nine-year-old boy which is pretty limited. So David Simon did take some creative liberty, liberties. And the reason why I know I was lying earlier about Philip Roth being dead is that he worked with Philip Roth on some of these, on some of these side stories and got his, and got his approval and okay before adding them into the show and things like that. But overall this, it's a really interesting piece. It's a really heavy piece, a really slow paced piece. I think you really have to be in the mood for it at times, especially the last couple episodes that get really intense. I mean, look like full warnings, like you have things like the KKK being shown here, like actually going out, burning crosses, lynching people. Like it's like pretty intense uh, by the end of the show. And it's scary. Like it's, it's, it's pretty scary because yes, it's an alternate history, but it like, yes, it, it doesn't feel like our reality, but it doesn't feel so far removed from our reality that it, it, it could be impossible and that you're able to separate yourself fully from what's going on, on the screen. And I think one of the most powerful things about the show is that, you know, David Simon as a creator is just so able to realize rich visions for his characters, for the stories that he's telling and he's able to tell it in such a cohesive and narrative way, even when you have all these different subplots going on, he's able to bring those together and create something that's really compelling. And if you're in the mood for something like that or in the mood for some sort of explorative alternative history drama, this is a great show. It's a really great show. Yeah, I, I mean, I always love hearing that Winona Ryder is doing, like she's had a little bit of a comeback now between this and, and Stranger Things. So like, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because like, when I watch her movies from like the eighties, the late eighties and nineties, I mean like, you know, so many like iconic roles in like the eighties and nineties, like whether, you know, Heather's girl interrupted Edward Scissorhands, uh, little women, reality bites, like all of these movies, um, from the eighties, she, she's not that old. That's the crazy part. She was yeah, doing well, movies yeah. in the eighties. Well, Heather's was like the late eighties, I think, but like iconic, like she was an iconic actress during that time period. And like, when I look back at those movies, I think like if I had grown up 10 or 15 years ago, then I feel like, like she and, and Nev Campbell are the two people that I always look at. And I'm like, they would have been for me then like what, like, uh, you know, a Haley the Richardson or Saoirse Renner or somebody like that is now as like my favorite actresses, like iconic actresses of um, that time period. So I, I love hearing that, that she's doing good stuff. And yeah, this, this sounds like an interesting depressing show probably but um yeah, yeah no i uh the ending is kind of interesting too it, it ends on a very strange note which i think you're really like gonna have to come to terms with and probably i mean mm -hmm. definitely is not how the book ended so there's a little i think a little little additional piece being written in there by david simon to to try to maybe even bring it more back to the present times and ask some tough questions but yeah it's uh i'd like i'd strongly strongly recommend it i don't think i've watched anything this year like new in 2020 that is truly like great phenomenal like 10 out of 10. Like I thought there were several shows last year like that. I mean, we're going to talk about normal people here in a second. I know you're very hot on it and I'm, I plan on watching it very soon, but this is probably the closest thing that I've come to, to getting to that, you know, Watchmen, Chernobyl, you know, fill in the blank here, 
with just spectacular shows that we had from last year. Um, I'm halfway through Killing Eve. I'm almost done with Defending Jacob. Home Before Dark was really good. Uh, but I haven't like none of that has really reached, I think, what the pinnacle of some of the things that we saw last year uh, in, in TV. And so uh, because of that, I, I'd recommend this because this is the closest thing that I think we've had. But I know I haven't watched everything because there's a lot of TV uh, out there and I've been watching a, a lot of BoJack. So I'm almost I'm, all, I'm in season five, Scott. So I'm almost there. Love it. Technically, um, BoJack is 2020, right? Because the last episodes came out in January. So. That's true. Yeah, that is true. Um, okay, Scott. Well, like as you mentioned there, um, normal people is what I was going to talk about. I'm, I'm not going to spend too long on it because obviously, I, if you get get our newsletter, then I did write a uh, somewhat lengthy piece there about um, why you know my feelings on the show, why I, I love it, and you know probably more eloquently than I can like say uh, out loud. But Just put the newsletter and read it word for word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but this show. I mean, it feels weird to say, but like this is probably one of the best shows I've ever seen. And, and it feels weird to say that because when I think about like my favorite shows, or I'm thinking about shows that like ran for a long time, like uh, The West Wing and Friday Night Lights and Leftovers and um, Gilmore Girls and stuff like that. Like those are like my favorite shows. And this is not a show, I mean, at least I don't think it's going to be a show that goes on for multiple seasons. So it's weird to say that it's like one of my favorite shows because it's more of like a mini series i guess is the point i'm trying to make but um it's uh, it's incredibly well done um it is based on a novel by sally rooney um a pretty popular novel from what i understand um and it is basically the you know year spanning story of the relationship between um these two um millennials um you have uh, Connell, who is played by Paul Mescal, and you have Marianne, who is played by Daisy Edgar Jones. They're both, uh, the, the show is set in Ireland. They're both Irish. Um, and it kind of picks up at the beginning with them in like their last year of high school. Um, and Connell is, you know, he's very popular. He plays, uh, he's a hurler, a hurling, you know, it's like the national sport of Ireland. And I, I believe that's the sport that he um, is involved in um, in the show. You know, he, he's, you know, popular jock guy and Marianne is like the outcast. She, um, you know, doesn't really talk to people. She gets made fun of a lot, uh, but she has like a very strong personality, right? If somebody tries to come at her, she comes back at them. So it's, it's a dynamic like that isn't necessarily the most original thing you've ever seen, but like the way that it is depicted from the beginning is just such an emotional experience. Like you, we just do not get enough um, romances like this that are just so like intelligent and intimate um, and just mature, I guess, in the way that they uh, portray relationships and, and particularly at like this transformational time in one's life, right? Because it starts off at, as they're like, um, like I said, in their last year of high school and the show basically carries forward till the end of college for them. And um, kind of like you were talking about with Plot Against America, right? Like it, the next episode doesn't always pick up where the last one left off. Like there will be times where they skip ahead several months, maybe. Um, yeah, that's but, exactly what Plot Against America does. It skips like yeah. usually four or five, six months. Yeah, but it it is so deeply felt. Like the uh, even when the characters aren't saying anything, like the dialogue and everything is is really strong. I think, and uh, again, very perceptive. But I think that the the body language and um, just the the tension between these two characters. I mean, the chemistry is incredible between these two two actors. I mean, I don't know what they had to what 
deep places they had to go to inside of them to get these performances. Um, but obviously they uh, are drawing on experiences from their own life, I think, because there's such an authenticity to their performances that um, takes this show uh, a long way. And I mean, yeah, there's not really too much else to say as far as the plot goes. I mean, it is really just following their relationship. Um, they, you know, obviously romantic relationship, but kind of reconciling that with where they are at certain points in their lives and what they want from life. And, you know, are they going to be able to, to make this work? Um, what does their relationship need to be going forward? Because they obviously each want the other person to be in their life, but what is that going to look like? Um, and yeah, it's just, all I can do is just like repeat praises, but, uh, and if you, if you look at reviews, like uh, that's kind of what people have been saying too. It's, it's intelligent, it's intimate, it's authentic. Um, it is just such a sincere portrait, uh, of, you know, the difficulty of, again, of forming, uh, these types of relationships at the, this time in, in one's life. And, um, I, I can't praise it highly enough. When I when I first heard about the show, I, I kept seeing it pop up in ads on Hulu, and um, I honestly did not interest me at all. Like from the, the the little snippets that they would show in the ad on Hulu ads on Hulu, I was like, I don't know about this. This doesn't look that good. But then is uh, it directed but, by a woman? I'm not interested in this. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is direct. Well, it is partially directed by women. It's also directed by Lee Abramson, who of course did uh, Room. Uh, movie that I'm actually not that big of a fan of. I do not hate it. I just am not in love with it like others. Yeah, you hate Brie Larson. You hate women actors, but you love women directors. That is true. Um, (laughs) But then friend of the pod, uh, Danny Kunkel, was watching this and was like, this show is so good. And I was like, okay, I'll I'll give it a chance. And I mean, yeah, I was sucked in. I I watched it really fast. um, And it's, I mean, it's a pretty easy binge. It's 12 episodes. Um, Half an hour, right? It's not a full hour. Yeah, yeah, usually like 25 to 32 minutes per episode or something. Very um, specific, 32 minutes. Yeah, I'm just going off the top of my head. But, um, <laughs> but like I said, the performances are amazing. Like I wrote this in the in the review, but I think that these are the types of performances where it's like, oh, I want to see them do other roles because they're so talented. But also it's like, at the same time, it's like, are they ever going to be able to like, are we ever going to be able to watch them and not think, Oh, there's Connell or, Oh, there's Marianne. Because like, they just feel so iconic instantly with their performances and the characters. I don't Um, think, I don't think enough people will have watched this to say that they'll never be able to perform other things and escape, not escape those roles. But interesting. Um, Yeah. yeah, I don't know what, like, I don't know what the viewership numbers are here. I mean, I think, I think it's doing very well in the UK, right? Because that's, I think where the novel did really well and where people are familiar with the novel. I don't know about how it's doing here, but um, it's amazing. It is, I mean, it did a lot of the feelings that I felt watching it. It did remind me of um, the before trilogy, right? Of of Richard Linklater. I knew you were going to say that. I was waiting. I I had my watch on when you were going to say that. Well, there just aren't that many like, you know, sensitive, intimate, like adult romances um, that are that are out there and obviously that's the one that that comes to my mind and those are some of my favorite movies obviously and this is one of my favorite shows i mean i don't think i would ever watch it again because it is just emotionally exhausting i mean like when you get to the end of it you'll just be like like is it it horrifically amazing is it horrifically amazing um i guess i could say that because it's partially created by a man but no i'm kidding um (laughs) It, it really, it, it is emotionally exhausting because no matter like whether you've actually had like the 
specifics of the relationship that they've had. Because, I mean, the, the relationship goes to some, you know, unique places that not everyone's going to be able to relate to. But you're going to find something to relate to. And you're going to, more than anything, you're going to relate to, like, the feelings and the emotions that come with this kind of relationship. And I think that's why. But that's what's most important about romance things, right? Like, yeah. you're, you're never going to create a romance story that someone can, like, per- like every person can personally relate to. Because not everyone's been in those situations. But. Yeah, I'm curious what you're laughing about here. (laughs) Well, you bring that up, but I was thinking about this during the show. But like my my first girlfriend and I, we got together when we were in Ireland on uh, our study away. And um, that is like, in fact, in Galway, I think uh, was like where we first got together. And that is like they're in Sligo, I think technically, but like, it's in the same area. I mean, they mentioned being in Galway at one point, like when this, like when their relationship starts. So there was that element of it where I was like, wow, I do like weirdly feel. And they, they go to like the college that they both attend, right. is Trinity college Dublin, which is like where I went when I was, we were, we stayed at Trinity college Dublin for a week. And like they, so there's like these scenes where they're walking through the campus. I was like, yep. I walked through this, like, are you uh, sure they weren't I, just filming at Vassar, though? They were probably just filming at Vassar. No, it was definitely trendy. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, this is a 10 out of 10 for me. Like, if I had to put a score on it, it's a 10. Like, I, there's not much wrong with it. Maybe the pacing is a little bit weird at times. So that was the one thing I was going to say is that the one complaint, the only complaint I've seen about this is that it's weirdly paced and, uh, and it feels a little uneven because it maybe follows Marianne more than Connell. Um, but that's that's yeah. just the, that's just like the one thing that I read about it. I, ha- I have seen that, that they wish that we would have gotten a little bit of I guess Connell's personal story a little bit more, but yeah. um, I don't know. It, it worked for me. I mean, I think the pacing is a little weird again, because I want to talk about it because it jumps forward in time and like, mm-hmm. you'll, you'll start an episode and like, it, there's not like car title cards or anything where it's like five months later or anything. It's like that. It's just yeah. like you're thrown into it and it's like, Oh wow. Okay. A lot of time has passed now. And like, um, you know, because it is so intimate, like you feel like you are spending so much yeah time with the characters is so much important time that all of a sudden when it's like months forward, you're like, wait a minute, what did I miss? I, ha- I mean, I'm, I surely I missed something in here. Like there's pl- probably plenty of important things that I missed, but no, I, th- I think you get over it really quick because of how strong the show is. But yeah. anyway, well, for the second time of this episode, Scott, after having heard you describe all the things that you like about this, like the emotional authenticity of it, the way that it's developed, I would say, uh, go watch portrait of a lady on fire yeah, if you, if you like these sort of emotional romance stories like this, because a lot of what you're saying reminds me a lot of what I was feeling when I was watching Portrait yeah. of a Lady on Fire. I guess so. I guess so. But Yo, put your I, money where your mouth is. If you, if you like women as much as you say, go watch a movie about. <laughs> oh, women. you're gonna pull that card on no, me? I'm you're probably like an anti-feminist if I if I no, don't. I'm, I'm a feminist. <laughs> oh God, um, no, you've said that. I didn't say any of that. No, I'm kidding. Um, but yeah, the, I I think I mentioned it. But this normal people's on Hulu. Please watch it. Um, it it is. Fun. So is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yes, yes, it is. Keep um, it coming. Keep it coming. Cool I can do this all day. Yeah. I think that will conclude today's episode of Some Like It. Scott, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? At Shelton 2013 And I am at Scarby Dent. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget uh, about our Patreon page, patreon.com slash media plug pods. Also, don't forget about our newsletter. I mentioned it here. 
Um, I enjoy making them. I've had a few people recently tell me they like them. So I guess it's good. I don't know. But you subscribe and, and tell me for yourself. But um, the more subscribers we have, the less likely Scott is to forget about it one Friday. <laughs> yeah, look, I have a lot going on right now. No, but, I, I do too. Uh, I, sometimes I forget to edit the podcast yeah. when I'm supposed to. And it, I remember uh, it the next day and I'm like, oh, crap, I need to do that now. Well, they're, they're, it all gets released eventually, but um, link will be in the episode description to subscribe to the newsletter um, and, you know, rate, review, subscribe, like, do all the things you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you will join us for our next episode on which we will be talking about Spike Lee's latest The Five Bloods on Netflix. Uh, until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.